This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number three. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. Today is Monday, July 14th, and I'm coming to you from soggy Naples, Florida, where we are well into the hot, humid portion of our summer. It's always hot here during the summer. It's always humid, and we go through periods where we get a great deal of rain that starts about 8 in the morning and ends in the evening. We're into one of those periods right now, and I'm hoping it ends soon and we see some sunshine tomorrow. Let me start the show by saying thank you very much for listening today. If you're an author, you know how important reviews are to discoverability. It's the same for podcasts. Positive reviews are a huge help in promoting the show. So if you enjoy it, please consider leaving an honest review on iTunes. Your reviews can help other podcast listeners find the show. I'll have a link in the show notes to our iTunes page. Again, I thank you for listening, and I know my guests do as well. Speaking of guests, I've got a great one today. Taylor Stevens, the award-winning New York Times best-selling author of the Vanessa Michael Monroe thriller series that launched just a few years ago with The Informationist. This interview, which was recorded via Skype in mid-June, is a real treat for me. Taylor is one of my very favorite authors, and her latest book, The Catch, is being released on July 15th. In this interview, we'll speak briefly about The Catch and her series, But most of our time will be spent discussing the business details facing authors who are under contract with Big Five publishers. Things like how and when advances and royalties are paid, how foreign rights are handled, and even some of the differences between having your manuscript pitched to publishers and having it pitched to Hollywood. In in publishing, people, I mean, you hear, you read stuff on blogs and you just kind of roll your eyes. You know, people are so scared. Oh, they're going to steal my manuscript. I need to copyright it and yeah, so on and yeah. so forth. Well, it's not going to, there's, there's no reason for them to do that in publishing. In the film industry, guard that thing, put under lock and key, don't let anybody see it because ideas are not copyrightable. The execution of the idea is protected, but not the idea itself. In this week's News That Affects Authors section, the Amazon-Hachette battle continues to rage on, and Amazon has finally begun to respond to claims they believe are erroneous. The media is reporting on this story as much more of a sporting event than a business issue. They award points for different things that are said and counterpoints for the replies. If you're interested in the story and haven't been following it, I'll link to some interesting articles in the show notes at theauthorbiz.com slash session3. And that's the number three. While the Amazon Hachette battle dominates the news, there was other news last week as well, including an item that I see as potentially more meaningful over the long haul. HarperCollins, one of the big five publishers, relaunched their website with a significant twist. They are now selling all of their paper books, ebooks, and audiobooks through the new website directly to consumers. HarperCollins' chief digital officer was quoted in a statement as saying, We are excited to be able to offer an e-commerce solution to our authors, ensuring their books are always available to their fans. As a publisher, we want to offer as many paths to the consumer as possible. This is an enormous change for them. 
It's long been a mystery to me why these publishers have not tried to engage with readers and have allowed third parties like Amazon to own that relationship. The relaunch of the HarperCollins website is a tentative first step. I checked the website myself, and it's nowhere near what online book buyers are used to seeing. The user interface is a bit clunky, and they don't make it easy to find books, but it's a start. The interface can and no doubt will be improved, and for the first time, a Big Five publisher is making a real effort to create a digital sales channel that can be used by readers. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions about the show, you can reach me through the AuthorBiz website, through our Facebook page, or just email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. Taylor Stevens is my guest today, and she's one of my very favorite authors. Her first book, The Informationist, is at the top of my recommended list. And film producer James Cameron obviously liked it as well, as he's optioned The Informationist for his production company. Taylor's latest book, the fourth full-length novel in the fabulous Vanessa Michael Monroe series is titled The Catch, and it's being released on July 15th. I had the opportunity to read an advanced reader copy of The Catch, and it's my favorite book of the year so far. This interview begins with me asking Taylor to describe The Catch. Okay, so The Catch is the fourth book in the Vanessa Michael Monroe series, and it takes place on Africa's east coast. It starts in Djibouti, which is actually on the Horn of Africa, uh, near the Gulf of Aden, um, at the mouth of the Red Sea, and it moves south uh, through Somalia and into Kenya. It is a story, a modern-day tall tale of piracy. It shows Vanessa Michael Monroe on her own without any, um, I guess, without anybody to back her up. It shows her and how she operates in a situation when she's just thrown into it without any resources and without anyone to call on for help. And it's written a little bit differently than the first three books in the series. Uh, This particular book is written in third person, but it's all in Michael's head. Why Why did you make the decision to write this book that way? Well... It's, it had to do with what happened in the book before, which was the doll, which was told through, I think it was four uh, very strong viewpoints on two different continents that had to be woven together in a timeline that was very, very intense. And writing that book um, just nearly killed me. It was, it was almost the death of me. And it was so difficult that I went to the opposite extreme with the next book, and I'm like, that's it, just one point of view, (laughs) one timeline, no wondering what's going on in the other parts of the world. But it created its own difficulties as well, so. Well, one of those difficulties from a a craft standpoint is that when you're writing from uh, from multiple people's perspectives, it's a little bit easier to have chapter endings that get you to turn the page. Um, That's harder to do from a a single person's perspective. What did you do to make the catch such a page turner? Uh, Well, thank you for the compliment. And I did not, I never even thought of of a single point of view in in that term. So I can't say that I ever did anything consciously (laughs) to to avoid it. I I find that um, the difficult thing in writing single point of view is finding a way to explain things that the character couldn't know in their own head, especially when there's a story with many, many moving parts in it, as the catch is, because there's many players playing against each other, and finding a way to get that information to the reader 
and to the character without a bunch of exposition or the thing that I hate most in books is finally you're at the end and the bad guy explains it all. I hate that. Um, <laughs> so I didn't want to have to do that. And, um, and so that was the difficulty of writing a single point of view. Um, but I, I, didn't, I hadn't ever really thought of it in terms of making the chapter breaks exciting. Now, the first thing I read of yours that was written from a single point of view was a novella called The Vessel. Yes. And that came out uh, about a month before The Catch. The Catch is coming out on the 15th. We're recording this ahead of time. Uh, the Vessel is out now. Uh, the last time you and I talked was six or seven months ago, and at that time you had written The Vessel, uh, but you weren't sure whether or not it would ever be published. Had I already written it by then? Well, you may have been writing it, because it's really interesting. Um, as I was reading it, I could hear your voice from the interview <laughs> saying things. And I'm like, oh, I thought, I, when, I, when I was reading it, I assumed you were actually writing it then, because it was almost like you just finished writing that chapter, and then we talked. I lose track of time sometimes. Um, everything blends together, but I know that the vessel was primarily written in October and November of 2013. Well, I know that you were planning on writing it, and you weren't sure if it, it would ever get published. And I am on your email newsletter list, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into talking about some marketing things. But you talked about that with your readers and fans through the email list, that, that the book was, uh, was, had been written and may or may not ever be published. Yes. Uh, what was that process like, getting it published? Well, first, what was it, right, what was it like? Because you normally write to a contract, and this book was not contracted. Correct. So what was that like for you? Uh, very liberating, because it didn't matter. I, I was writing it for myself, and I was writing it for my fans and readers, and I was like, it doesn't matter if anybody likes this. If nobody wants it, I can just give it away free. I mean, quite, it's not quite that simple, really, when you're under contract with a publisher. But I, it, it didn't matter. And I, wasn't, I knew that with a small novella like that, there's no money in it. So I wasn't writing it to pay the bills. I wasn't writing it for a contract. I was just writing it for the love of telling a story. And it's an amazing story. I, I've, I've got to say, the, the reviews, the, the Amazon reviews for this. It's, it's only available digitally. It's um, about 100 pages, and it's off the charts fabulous. It's also available in audio. Yes. Oh, well, thank you for bringing <laughs> that up, because I listened to it in audio and read it. Uh, just in case any listeners uh, aren't already aware of it, I am a huge fan of Taylor Stevens, so I'm, I'm not hiding anything here. It was great. I mean, it was really, really great. I, I think it's the my second favorite of, of your books, and uh, The Informationist, the first book that you wrote, it, it's, it's really going to take a lot to knock that off the top of the charts for me. I know that's not your favorite book of, of the series. Which, which one is yours? Uh, actually, I guess The Vessel is my favorite just because okay. I have so much love in my heart for it. But honestly, um, I, don't, I think The Informationist probably will always be my best book. It, it, it might not be the best writing but it will probably always be the best storytelling. And it, it has something in it that um, it, it will be very hard for me to replicate. I have ideas for how to do it for another story, but in, that's the only book in the series where we're discovering and learning Monroe's past at the same time to the extent. We don't know anything about who she is or why she is, and we discover that and learn that 
throughout the course of the story. And the story itself is also very exotic location and, and just it's just different. So to be able to replicate that where you're learning about who this person is, it, it can really only happen once or, if you're lucky, twice. Now, with that being said, you also did a great job of explaining the backstory in The Vessel. It was maybe the first time you'd ever gone back and really sort of explained and just sort of interspersed it in with the story, but you really laid it out for people who were maybe coming to the vessel as their first acquaintance with, with your writing. Um, I don't know that I 100% agree with that. I do try and put it in every single book. The difference in the vessel is that it's all in one place, whereas in many of my other stories... I spread it out because I don't like to just hit readers with this massive chunk of backstory. Mm -hmm. But in the vessel, because it moved so fast and I, I made it, it, it was very sparse on the words, I could do that. Okay. I felt like it was interspersed mm -hmm. a little bit, but there was a section where there was a good bit of it when I realized that uh, this would be because it's 99 cents, a lot of people would, would maybe read this that hadn't read some of your other books and then would be encouraged to go back and, well, of course, go read the catch, but maybe go back and read the entire series. Correct. Because you get a real sense of Vanessa Michael Monroe in the, in the vessel. It's, it's all Michael all the time. And uh, for people who aren't familiar with Vanessa Michael Monroe, uh, she is somewhat androgynous. She speaks an, an ungodly number of languages, but we know it's not a record-setting number of languages. And there's a term for that. Is it polyglot? Polyglot. Polyglot. And I'm not 100% sure that I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that's how I think it's pronounced. Okay. Um, how did you actually come up with such a unique character? By accident. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it, the different aspects of her abilities, I guess you could say, um, were born from different types of, uh, of situations. Um, her androgyny came from the fact that I have lived in many of the countries that she works in, at least at the beginning, and they're not very um, forward-thinking when it comes to women, and there's just no way that a woman could do what she does as a woman in those countries, and so she's the type of person that will do whatever it takes to get the job done and that was the most reasonable logical way to get that type of job done um, as far as the multiple languages um, I wanted her to speak multiple languages I mean granted outside of the United States just about every country unless it's some little island nation with only one racial demographic on it Speaks more. People speak more than one language. We're, we're one of the few countries in the world that's mono, primarily monolingual. So having her speak a few languages was just sort of, it, it, duh. But I wanted her to be the type of person who could assimilate languages. And that's when I started researching um, polyglotism. And um, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't completely unrealistic what she could do. And so that's where that came from. I didn't want it to be like... You know, in a, lot of, in a lot of books, people who speak multiple languages are like CIA trained or, you know, they studied them or whatever. And that's not her background. So there had to be a logical explanation for it in a, in a different way. I thought it was interesting. There's a scene in The Catch where someone 
believes that she's a CIA, CIA agent because of the questions she's asking and, and the fact that the, she speaks his language. I had a lot of fun with that. So we're talking about your books. Uh, a big part of you as a person is also the way that you look at your writing as a business. Uh, you are one of the most business-oriented authors that, that I've had the pleasure of speaking with, and you write about it in great detail as a part of your emails that go out to your readers and fans, as we mentioned before. Um, what's, what's the basis for that interest in business other than just protecting your assets? Well, I'm fascinated by business. Um, I People look at me like I'm a creative, but I'm not. I'm more of a bean counter personality. Creating is very, very difficult for me. Um, I, I'm a good storyteller once the the juices are flowing and the story is there and I'm able to, um, and I'm getting better at poking holes in the story so that it's tighter. Um, but, but naturally I'm more of a, an accountant type, I guess you could say. I'm a little bit risk averse and, uh, I, I pay attention to details and I, uh, grew up dirt poor. So I'm trying to avoid at all costs returning from where I came <laughs> Um, I don't want to lose the, the roof over my head. And, and I know that without having a handle on how the environment works, I mean, they, no, nobody goes and produces a product without doing a risk assessment, not anybody who succeeds anyway, um, and, and, and all that. So when, when I very first started in the publishing industry, so many of my questions, I had been unable to get answered just through the internet. Granted, there was a lot less on the internet back then, but all my questions to my agent had nothing to do with the writing or, or awards. Or I just wanted to know, how does this contract work? What does this mean? How does this process work after that? And so on and so forth. And I, I'm, I'm sure I annoyed her at some point with my many questions. But, but then I was able to grasp them as well and then internalize them and figure out how to um, explain that to other people. And why do you do that? Why do you, why do you explain it to other people? Because I, these are things I wanted to know and nobody was able to tell me. And I, I look around at, well, back then anyway, I looked around at all, all else that was out there and it seemed like all writers really talked about was how to write. But, you know, once you pass the basics in writing, it's all the same in the minds of readers, you know, except for a very selective few. Writing is storytelling. And once you can tell a story in a, you know, clean way that doesn't jar the reader from, from it, the reading trance, well, after that, it's all just gravy. So what really matters is understanding the business. And the business is actually changing so much, even in my few years of, of being published, that I'm not sure I completely understand it anymore. Well, let's, um, for people who don't know, what, when was The Informationalist published? The Informationist was published in March of 2011. Okay, and when did you sign your deal for that? I believe the offer came in in June 2009. Okay, so when you talk about your time in the business, as a business person, we're talking about a five-year period of time, and obviously a great deal has changed in, in that amount of time. Yes. But I still talk to people 
all the time who don't look at writing as a business. They don't look at their books as a product. And that's, that's one of the big reasons that, that I'm doing this podcast and, and one of the big reasons that I wanted to talk to you because you come at all of this from a business perspective. Each of your books is a product. Each of your books has uh, revenue expectations. There are expenses associated with it. Um, you really pay attention to this stuff. Do you run into people, that uh, authors that you know, that, that look at it at the same level that you do? Um, to be honest, I'm not quite sure because in the, in the few times that I do interact with authors, it's usually at um, conventions and, and stuff. And when we talk about the business side of things, we're mostly talking about sales and such, not necessarily contracts or just everybody's trying to figure out how to succeed in this business. And usually we're just swapping notes, but it's not really in a sense of digging down deep into the analytics. Well, what um, it, you mentioned analytics. Uh, what metrics do you look at? What metrics do you pay attention to? I pay attention to sales primarily. I pay attention to um, how many people uh, regularly interact with me through email. I pay attention to uh, whether, I mean, I, I pay attention to royalty statements incredibly so, but not so much because of, you know, oh, did I earn any money, but I'm trying to compare relative how this one book performed at a certain period compared to another, uh, whether the, the ratio of ebooks to paper books has changed, uh, just along those lines. You mentioned interacting with uh, with with readers via email is that people just emailing you cold or is that people responding to messages on the email list um, what what exactly are you talking about at the beginning before I had an email list people responded to me cold just would write me um, but now that I have the email list and it's very obvious on my website mostly I have people sign up and then write to me directly from there occasionally I do still get cold uh, emails. I also get people who approach me through um, uh, Facebook and Twitter. I'm not really on all the social networks. Like I have a Google Plus account that I started once, and people keep adding me to their social circles, and I've never signed into it in the la since I opened it. So <laughs> I, I suppose I'm failing in that regard. I should probably go do something there, but <laughs> it, it takes time away from writing and. And really, the best thing I can do to build this brand, and it, it, is, it is a struggle in, in the current climate to build the brand, is to write another book. So let, let's talk about the brand. You okay. are an incredibly focused person. Um, I, I know that in dealing with you uh, on a professional level for scheduling interviews and things like that, I also know it from reading your, your emails that go out, and I can sense it in the books that you write. Um, you don't flitter away time uh, on social media. You use social media to accomplish something. And that's, that's my sense. Um, how do you look at all of this together in terms of building the Taylor Stevens brand? That's a really good question. I, I look at it is in, a, in a way of, do people know that I exist? People can't buy books if they don't know they exist. And 
lots of people have different ways of, of interacting. The reason why I prefer email is because it allows me to better control my time. I can answer emails when I have time. But not everybody is willing to stay on an email list when they're getting emails from you once or twice a week. They're just like, it's too much. I can't handle this. Uh, so as far as Facebook and stuff, I, I, I just... I just do the best that I can. That's all, the only thing that I can say. I, I don't really, like some people, some authors are able to just get on there and they chat and they share links and they do all of this stuff. And I would do it if I had something of value to say, but I don't feel like I want to clutter up people's lives by just saying nonsense. So for that matter, I'm, I'm rather silent on social media, but I do read things that other people post sometimes and I mean like sometimes I'll lie in my bed with my phone and you know at night before I go to sleep and I'll spend a good hour just you know reading stuff that people have written on Facebook or posted on Twitter or whatever I find it very fascinating it keeps me connected to the world because I don't really socialize a lot outside of you know my my home life but as far as how it all ties together I, I don't know I don't have a, a magic button I, I see some authors who have like just thousands and tens of thousands of fans on their Facebook page and I don't I have relatively few to that extent but I also know that when it comes to Facebook not everybody who's a fan of your page actually gets to see what you post unless you're paying Facebook to send it out so you know I tend to focus all my energy on my email list I figure that people who are willing to you know stay with me through email are the ones who probably really do want to read my books and really do want to know what goes on and who I'm able to connect with as individuals instead of just nameless, faceless people. And I think that that's a really good approach to take. I've, I've spoken to a number of authors and communicated with people who feel like having a Facebook presence is enough, but you have your website and you have this email list that's yours. It doesn't belong to Facebook. They can't change the terms and conditions and take it away from you. They can't start charging you to make your message show up on someone's stream. It's just yours. And if you want to send out an email message to say that you've got a novella that's coming out, uh, you can do that. And you can very quickly see the results of that email. Yes. So a month or so ago, maybe six weeks ago, you sent out an email message saying that the vessel was going to be available and it's available for pre-order and there was a link and you could go click on the link and pre-order the book and a lot of people did you could see that from the way the the sales rankings jumped yeah, as they, soon as you sent that email it. message out true very true and that had to feel good it did it felt really really good and uh there are some like Different people want different things from me. Not, not everybody is as eager to be all in my news or in my business as everybody else. They just want to know when a book is published and then be left alone. And I think my email list is too much for them. But for the ones who stick it out, I, I feel like they're friends. You know, they, they, I, I get to know them through emails. I interact with them. And uh, I may not know their face. I may not know, you know, their their families or anything, but I value them as individuals to the extent that you can value somebody that you've never met. And I know that they grow, they've grown to care about me as a person. Uh, they've, they've watched me through, some people have been with me on this email list for more than two years. And it, it's hard not to care. 
even if you never buy that person's book, which a lot of them, there are people on my list who've never bought a book of mine, uh, you, you, still, you still see that person as an individual, as a person, and not some commodity, which, you know, in, in today's world, we have a tendency to view celebrities, and I'm not saying I'm a celebrity, but anybody that we see in the news or, or on TV, we don't view them as, as individuals with, with thoughts and feelings and personal pain and, and drama like ourselves. We see them as something a little bit separate from that. And so what I think the email list does is it humanizes me and it humanizes them. Like I have two types of emails that I send out. That I feel like the the stuff that I write about publishing, it takes, it takes a lot of effort to put those emails together. I don't just write them in 10 minutes and then post them. Some of them take me two or three hours to construct to make sure that they're worded properly and the information is as accurate as I can get it. And, you know, it, it takes time. And because I'm in this for the long haul, it, and my email address, email list is going to be up for years if, you know, everything works the way that I'm hoping that it works. It would be such a crying shame if somebody three years from now is very interested in what I have to say about publishing and they sign up, but they miss out on all that information because they were just three years too late. So the emails that I really invest a lot of time into about publishing and such, I put them on a clock so that everybody who signs up on my mailing list will eventually get that same information. And then there, and that's the information that if I it's valuable. If I wanted to, I could probably compile it, expand it, and sell it. But I don't. I give it away for free because people people need to know these things. It's it's industry stuff that a lot of people don't talk about. So then then I have the newsy things that go out, you know, once a month. Sometimes when we're close to a a launch, might come a little sooner, a little more frequently as more updates come out. I don't want people to miss out on things that are going on. But for the most part, those are the two types of emails I sent. And those, those newsy ones, once they're gone, they're gone. Somebody three years later is not going to get the same thing. But they will get the same information about royalties or contracts and such. And all of that is, at least to me, and I think anybody that's even remotely interested in publishing, whether from a, a self-published standpoint or a traditionally published standpoint or just from the perspective of a reader wanting to understand how it all works, um, it's it's very informative. It's easy to under mostly easy to understand. Some of it's uh, pretty complicated, um, but you do a great job of explaining it, and it's fascinating. And I I read every one of those that come out, and I can sort of tell which ones are the publishing ones and which ones are the are the newsy ones. And I'm sure that I'm sure that others can as well. Um, one of the emails that you sent out involved royalty payouts. You've sent out several email emails on royalty payouts. But something that I didn't know was that authors were compensated differently for hardback book sales and ebook sales. I assumed yes. it was all the same. Could you walk us through that? Um, it's. I guess we could say instead of hardback books, we could say paper okay. book, paper sales and ebook sales. Um, paper sales are are based off of cover price. So, generally speaking, the the publisher sets the publish the the cover price and they sell their books well actually no they commission their books or put them on consignment they consign their books to bookstores at a at a discount typically i think it ranges about 50% so if the cover price says $24 the book buyers the bookstores will be getting it for $12 or 
whatever discount they've managed to negotiate directly with the publisher. And I'm sure there are other costs involved, like shipping and, and so on and so forth. But those are on consignment. So if the bookstore doesn't sell them, for any reason whatsoever, they can return them to the publisher for credit for other books. So they're, they're not really being sold. So for that reason, royalties are based off of cover price. Uh, because the, the publisher has no control over what the bookseller price the bookseller actually sells them at. The margin between where the bookseller buys them and what the publisher uh, puts them on consignment for, that's the bookseller's margin. That's where they make their profit. So when you get a bookstore that's selling them at 40% off, the bookstore is still roughly making maybe a 10% margin depending on what their shipping costs and so their, their fixed costs are. Um, regardless, the books that don't get returned to the publisher, the author is paid off of a, a royalty rate off of cover price. And that depends on the book. Hardback books typically have a schedule where they say first 5%, I mean, sorry, first 5,000, it's 10% uh, of cover price. And second 5,000 above that is 12.5% of cover price. And third, the third 5,000 and above that is 15% of cover price. Uh, very, very, very few books will ever reach that. Even selling 5,000 hardback books is just huge, 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 huge. Even more so now than in the days of uh, before digital became as big as it is. Um, pa trade paperbacks and mass market generally tend to have a fixed rate of just this much above cover price. Uh, this much a percent of cover price. I think it's like 7.5% for um, trade paperback and maybe around 8% for mass market, except like anything over 150,000 copies is a different rate. But mass market has kind of gone away. Like it used to be that many, many books were published in mass market. Those are the, the little fat ones that mm -hmm. you would see hanging in, a, just for any readers that don't know, um, hanging in like a, a book rack at the, the drugstore or whatever. That's how book royalty rates are, are uh, for print are calculated. And, you know, the contract terms are going to be different from author to author. Lots and lots of de details uh, about re uh, returns and remainders and all this type of stuff. But because the book, the publisher doesn't know how many books are actually coming back on consignment, they don't actually give you all the royalties that you earn right away. They don't credit them they hold back some for returns. And based on whether, I mean, they have lots of fancy spreadsheets that help them project based on your prior sales and how other books have done, what they more or less expect the returns to be. And only once they're convinced that books aren't going to be returned back to them, do they release those funds towards your royalties. That's how print works. Digital eBooks are completely different because for the most part, Ebooks don't get returned, and for for the most part, and, and it's changed a lot. <laughs> the industry keeps changing. The publisher doesn't get to set the price of what an ebook will sell at. Now they do, then they don't. It just five months from now, this information probably won't even be current anymore. <laughs> so the way that the contracts read for digital is that the author gets a percentage of net. So whatever the publisher gets from 
the retailer for ebooks, the author's going to get a percentage of the net. And this varies. Um, traditionally, for years now, it's been locked in at a 25% rate, which everyone, everyone down the food chain, except for publishers, have screamed that that is horribly unfair to authors because it is such a small amount of the actual money that's being brought in for less work on behalf of the publisher. For example, a publisher has to print, store, ship physical books. And that does factor into the overall cost, but not by much. Like people who say, oh my God, this print book was you know, $11 and this ebook was $9 and the publisher is ripping us off. Well, it's been said and probably is true that the manufacturing costs and shipping costs and such of a paper book only works out to about 10% of the cost of producing a book. So traditionally, the royalty rate for print was supposed to work out as such so that when the author had earned out their contract, earned, earned out their advance, whatever came in and above that was more or less fairly split 50-50 to the publisher and the author. That's what the traditional royalty rates on print were supposed to account for. In ebooks, with the percentage of net, it's probably not 50-50. <laughs> Pretty fair to say is not 50-50. And it's, it's been a really tough nut to crack. Uh, publishers have, have, for the longest time, refused to budge on those numbers, and for good reason. That's why they're staying solvent. You know, publishing is in a state of turmoil right now, and they don't know where things are going, and they're making bank on ebooks. Excuse that. Um, I had a talk with a friend of mine who's in a different um, publishing, uh, not in the same publisher as mine, and uh, she was saying how they weren't willing to negotiate on ebook rates at that time because they had no idea where it would stop as far as market saturation. They said right now ebooks are still in their infancy and uh, they believed that people were buying far more books than they were actually reading but once the e-readers were full and they kind of the, the newness of it wore off and e-readers sort of reached its market saturation then the rate that people were buying ebooks was going to slow down and they didn't want to give away the farm and then find out that things had changed and they couldn't undo it. That was their position. It's not my publisher, and I don't know if it's the position of, of many publishers or not. But traditionally, ebooks have been locked in at a 25% of net towards the author. And that means that when you, if, if you look at it in the way of every ebook sold is a, let's say, trade paperback book that doesn't get sold, then yes, the author is making book per book less money than they would have if ebooks didn't exist. Some people ask, well, if ebooks did have ebooks increased sales overall for a book, and I don't think that it's ever going to be possible, no matter what kind of metrics someone has, to, to say whether an e because of ebooks readers bought more of one particular title than they would have if ebooks didn't exist, because that's like trying to predict the future, so you know, so to speak. You just it's an unknown; you just can't know. Um, so are ebooks in general meaning more books are being bought? Probably, because I do agree that even from my own personal buying habits, I buy when I do buy ebooks, which is rarely, uh, I do buy more than I read. 
and they just sit there. And then one day when I'm on a plane or whatever, and I don't have a book with me, eventually I'll, I'll read them. So where this, where this goes, I don't know. Um, it's possible. I know that some big, big name authors have managed to crack that nut of 25%, but how long it takes till it trickles down to someone like me, I don't know. So my own personal sales rank in about 50%. Well, the informationist, which is the first book, it doesn't count as for the metrics. It's sort of an outlier because um, it's been put on sale so many times. It's been a Kindle daily deal and whatever that the, the number of eBooks is, is per ratio is higher than the others. But I think roughly my sales are in the 50% range of ebook. So uh, I lose out, yeah, on royalties, absolutely, because so many of my books are digital. My sales are digital. Okay, you mentioned the term earning out your advance. Um, th there will be people who don't know what that means. And you wrote a, you wrote a fascinating uh, email. I think it was one of the first ones, uh, first of your emails that I read that talked about the advance. There are a lot of people who see an advance as you know, such and such, so-and-so got, uh, I'll let you pick the number to make it easier for you to do the math. Someone got an advance that was so many thousands of dollars, and we as readers assume that that advance goes right into the author's pocket, and there's a big party, you know, maybe a month later the book is published, and then royalty checks start pouring in. Um, when I read your email, I was stunned at how long it took for the money, even from the advance, to reach your pocket. Can you walk us through that? Okay. So it's, of course, it's going to vary from publisher to publisher. It's going to vary based on format. Like, I, I'm assuming that if somebody does an e-only book, that the terms are going to be different. It, it, so this is just sort of a general overview. If you sign a traditional deal with a traditional publisher, and since I'm really bad at math, Let's just use either, let's see, there's go with 10,000 or 100,000, kind of extremes, but I can work with tens. Um, so let's say $100,000. Um, that's a really, really big advance for a book. And um, what advance means is in advance of royalties. So when a publisher decides how much they're going to pay you, the author, for your book, they run their fancy metrics, they, you know, bounce it off other people in their departments to get a feel for what they could do with this book and how many copies they think they can sell. And then based on how many copies they think they can sell and how much money they're going to get out of it, they're going to offer you money in advance of the royalties that are, they're expecting to get back. So let's say you're really lucky and you get this big $100,000 advance on your book. Okay. The con the contract, <laughs> wow, celebrate. Don't <laughs> celebrate yet and don't quit your day job. First of all, this is pre-tax dollars. The money will probably likely be paid out to your agent. Typically, that's who, who the money goes to is spelled out in the contract as well. And then the agent will take their fees and then the agent will forward you the rest. But the money is not just handed over. First, you have to deliver the book which you're thinking, oh, but I already wrote it. That's easy. Here you go. Oh, no, 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 no. Delivery also means delivery and acceptance, which means that the editor has gone over with you. And it could be, I mean, the editorial process could be a month or it could be a year just based on um, how, how much work they think it needs and how long it takes the author to work and so on and so forth. Your dog clearly does not like this process. <laughs> he expects you to get all the money up front. 
I'm really sorry about that, but if I close the door, then they'll stand there and whine. So at, at this point, you're, you're, you, you have agreed to receive a $100,000 advance. Yes. Um, and it, you have to give them something that they accept. Have you received any money yet? Mm, yes. Okay, so the first, okay, depending on the publisher, the money is going to be divided into a certain number of parts that's going to be given to you uh, in, in milestones. My publisher, it's four parts, and it goes like this. 25% on signing the contract. 25% on delivery and acceptance. 25% when the manuscript is published, the book is published, and 25% a year after the book's pub first pu its publication date. So depending, like let's use the informationist as, as an example. I signed that contract in June of 2009. So right away I was given some money. Thank you, God. Now I can pay my electricity bill and I'm not going to lose my house. Then comes the editorial process, which for the informationist didn't really take so incredibly long because I was very motivated. I worked very, very fast. Well, let, let me stop you here, Taylor, and take a step back. Because, and, and let's use the hypothetical $100,000, and let's be clear that this is a hypothetical. It, Very hypothetical. We're in no way, shape, or form saying that, that that's the advance that you got for the informationist. Correct. So um, in this hypothetical situation, you didn't get a check for $25,000 because the check went to your agent. Your agent took his percentage. Yes. And then there were some taxes that need to be set aside for. So what... If what? you're business-minded, you will set aside those taxes. A well, lot of people let's don't do so. that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, good point. And then they're hit with a tax bill at the end of the year. Yes. So let's uh, say that you set aside some money for taxes and you pay your agent. Are you maybe getting then of this hypothetical $25,000, $17,000? I'd say, I mean, again, you know, the agency fee you can know for sure. The, the tax rate is a little bit iffy because, you know, it would depend. Are you the only income provider for your household? Do you have a, somebody, does, is your spouse earning $500,000 a year? Because if your spouse is earning $500,000 a year, you're basically working for free. Um, it, it, there's a lot of factors involved there. But regardless, you're going to be paying the 15.3% uh, self-employment tax, which is um, Medicaid and social Security, mm -hmm. which most people who are used to working for an employer don't realize it's that high because ha only half of it's coming out of their paycheck. But as a self-employed individual, you now have to set aside that whole part. So assuming that your income is so low that, which if you're an author and you don't have a spouse earning $500,000 a year, me, um, <laughs> then, then maybe you're one of those 47% that don't pay federal taxes, in which case... In which case, your 15.3% would cover it. But if you have other sources of income, then you're going to have to set aside more. So you're looking at 153 to 20% to 25% that you're setting aside. Um, so it, it really varies on, on how much you could expect to see in that first check. Okay, but it's nowhere near $25,000. Nowhere near. Regardless. Okay. No. All right. So that's it. We've, we've got our $25,000 less a bunch of things. We've had a party, and now we've got to deliver something. Yes. So then comes the editorial process where your editor works with you to get the manuscript into the best shape story-wise, plot-wise, character-wise, and so on and so forth that they feel that it can be uh, and that both the author and the editor are happy with it. At that point, once the editor says, okay, we're done editing, 
that's considered delivery and acceptance, and then that triggers payment number two. Okay, and in your case, the payment number one, we'll say, was June of 2009. Yes. When, when was payment number two? I'm going to say that it was probably also in 2009. I'm sure I have records. I could go back and look, but I don't want to be clickety-clickety on my computer right now. Um, but I'm, I think it's fair to say it was also 2009. Okay. All right. So we'll say, just because I can write something down, we'll call it December. And then it's published eventually. Yes, that would have been March 2011. Which was 15 months later? Yes. So Something the, like that. The, the big $100,000 advance that people think you got really turned into maybe $35,000 in 2009 and nothing until March of 2011? 2011. Yes. So you, you, if you spent any money at all on the big party, you spent too much. Yes. Okay, so in March of 2011, you get the third installment. Yes. And then the best you can hope for is another installment in a year, or is it, is it even conceivable that a, a book that just blows the doors off um, would earn out ahead of time, ahead of that year, with, with the understanding that they have to set aside for returns and everything else? Or is it, 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 depends on the, it depends on how big the advance was. If the advance was not astronomically high, then there's a really good chance that a book that blows down the doors is going to earn out uh, right away. The information is earned out before it ever went to print because it was so strong in foreign sales. Now, does that mean you got the fourth installment sooner? No. Does what it mean it means... you got any royalties sooner? No. Okay. Nothing kicks in until the book is published. So all of those foreign rights that were being paid on the book were sitting with the publisher on a spreadsheet somewhere and in their bank account until the book was published. But even then, you don't get it right away. You don't get royalties right away. So let's say in this hypothetical example, okay, we've already got the four, the four payments sorted out. We've got them in June 2009, December 2009, March 2011, and March 2012. So let's say in this, in this hypothetical example that the book, like mine, was actually published in March of a year. Well, royalties are calculated for these types of deals twice a year. There are other types of deals where royalties are calculated more often, and there are Amazon and other online places that I think maybe they do it monthly. I'm not sure because I have never done, gone that route. But from what I've read, I think that's what they right. do. Right. But we're talking about a traditionally published normal situation. Yes. Or what is at least normal in today's environment. Yes. We'll see. We yes. don't know what next year Tomorrow, will be. Tomorrow, it could all be different. So royalties are only calculated six months, but they don't just, every six months, but they don't just calculate the royalties and say, here's a check. You get that check four or five months after the royalty period has closed out. So in my particular case, I feel very fortunate because the informationist went on sale in the first week of March and March 31st closed out royalties for that quarter. So because it had already earned out before it sold a single copy in the United States, that meant that that August, I already got a royalty check. When did you get the fourth payment? Or does that come now or not until March of 2012 regardless? March of 2012 regardless. Okay. 
And right. that's spelled out in the contract. Too. Okay. Okay. So for people who think that getting a traditionally published deal is the path to riches, it may very well be, um, but those riches don't come quickly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they don't, uh, if at all. Um, because especially if you, if you have quit your day job, then you're living on all that money. It's not accumulating. And so you're eating, as, eating it as you go. So $100,000 spread over three years is really not a lot of money. And that's a huge advance. And that's after, it, it's $100,000 before your agent's percentage and before the taxes. Correct. So you're probably, of that 100, you're probably talking best case 65 to 70,000 over the course of three years. I'd say best case, you're looking at keeping 85% of it. That's if you don't end up having to pay a single tax on it, which is highly unlikely because you still have Medicare and, and right. Social Security that's 15% taxes. percent all by itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, um, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not very encouraging, I know. Um, but then the thing you have to also realize is that in, in my particular case and in the case of many genre authors who have more than one book, even though the informationist was paying out like that, I was already working on the second book. So the second book was being contracted, delivered, and so on and so forth. So it wasn't just surviving on one book. It was surviving on two and then getting the next contract lined up and so on and so forth. The more books you have, assuming that they earn out, the, the slower, more it slowly, steadily builds to where you're not living off the, just that first contract signing anymore. Now, was the informationalist uh, a single book contract? No, the informationist was informationist, a, sorry. It was a two book contract. The informationist okay. the innocent came together. And this is a really important thing that I just want to interject here. It's a little bit off track, but not very many authors understand how this works. And this is a contract you're signing. What many publishers will try to do is combine the two books into the same accounting. So they're jointly accounted for, which means that before you can actually earn, get any royalties, both books have to earn out. Oh. And that is, that is a horrible, horrible position to be in if you have a massive bestseller with the first one and the second one bombs. You're never going to see any more money, ever, because you're not going to meet that, that earn out for, for both of them. But so what you really want to do when you're, if you have an agent and they're handing you a contract, fight for, fight with everything that's in you to get those books separately accounted. That's a really good distinction. That's, and that's the first time I've ever heard that. You mentioned foreign rights. Talk, talk in a little bit more depth about foreign rights, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, as, as they sound, foreign rights are foreign, foreign publishers. So anytime you create uh, intellectual property, which is what a, a book is, you as a creator own all the rights to that property. It's yours to do with as you please. And when a publisher purchases the rights to that book, that property, what they're purchasing is the right to do with as they please. But they don't just automatically get all your rights. They are buying specific rights from you. And a lot of big publishers will try and get what's known as world print rights, which means that now they own those print rights, and then they can in turn uh, get their foreign rights department to uh, negotiate with foreign agents 
and get a foreign publisher to to pay for the right to publish it in their language uh, in whatever territories they now are negotiating for. There are pros and cons to giving up to, to selling foreign rights. Um, foreign rights can be worth a lot of money if you have a big bestseller on your hands. They can be worth a lot of money even if you're if you're self-publishing. And you don't want to give up foreign rights if, the, if you're not being properly compensated for them because foreign rights have potential to bring you money faster through your own individual agent than if they're going through your publisher. And here's why. When, when you sell your foreign rights to your publisher, also in the contract is going to be the language of how much goes to the publisher and how much goes to you. So just because you've sold your foreign rights to the publisher doesn't mean they get to keep all the money that they sell them for. Typically, it's a 75-25 split where 75% of the proceeds of the sale go to the author and 25% goes to the publisher after for any foreign taxes, any sub-agent fees, and so on and so forth, which let's say you hypothetically sold your foreign rights to your book to France for 10000 U.S. dollars. Well, it would be 10,000 euros. So you're going to have fluctuations in exchange rates depending on when the money actually comes in. It's crazy. So, but just to keep it simple, let's say that the, the foreign agent fee is 15% and there aren't any big foreign taxes involved. So that now gets us down to 8,500, if my math is correct. The publisher is going to take 25% out of that. The 75% is going to be put towards your accruing royalties against your advance. And then once it's paid out to, once you start earning royalties, then of course your agent's going to take their commission and then you get what's left over. That's how it works when your publisher owns the foreign rights to a book. When your agency is the one trying to sell it, well then they just have the 15% that that the foreign, however much the foreign agent took, let's say 15%, and then the agent takes their fee. So you cut out the 25%. Plus, it's not accruing towards your royalties that you may or may never get because you may or may not have earned out. That's just money in your pocket right then and there. And how quickly would you normally expect to get that? I don't know because all, all of my foreign rights have been sold through my publisher. Okay. So when... when a foreign publisher buys the rights for a U.S. book, and I believe it's probably the same whether they're buying it from a U.S. publisher or from an agent, the contract terms are going to state when they pay the money. Uh, when it's, from what I've heard talking to publishers in foreign countries, they, if it's a big sale, like a, a, a big purchase, they're going to divide it up also into on contract signing, on delivery, on you know. So it could be hugely extended when you actually ever see that money as well. The thing is too is that, like with the informationist, that it was a almost a year and a half from the time that the contract was signed to the time that it was in print. All those foreign rights were just sitting with my publisher. But if they had gone directly to my agent, then I would have been collecting checks along the way. Yes. Because the the rights sold for enough that you earned out, um, it was a lot of money. It it did. No matter it, how much it was, it was a lot of money. It, it was it was. I I, I cried. 
Now, granted, you have to understand how broken, how poor I was at the time, but it was enough money that I, I cried. Literally, I, I, I couldn't fathom being able to not have to have this tension and this stress in my chest of how, how am I going to survive. But that's a story for another time. So I just wanted to say one last thing on the subject of foreign rights, which is Depending on when the money actually hits the account of your publisher, if, if your publisher is the one who retains, who, who bought the rights, because of the way the U.S. accounting works with the publishers, with their every six-month thing, like let's say, for example, they're on the, you know, March 31st closes out their accounting, and the foreign publisher pays on April 10th. Well... Now you got to wait a whole another six months before it's even accounted for, and then another four months after that before you actually see that money. So this is why if you're not being well compensated for the world rights, don't sell them. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> All right. There are additional income streams for books that we haven't talked about yet. Um, do you know much about audiobook rights and how how those work? I only know that most publishing contracts are going to try and grab every right that they possibly can. There's, unless you are an ebook publishing phenomenon in, in self-publishing, there's probably no way for the, the lowly authors like me and you to retain ebook rights and do a print-only deal. As far as I understand it, audio rights are pretty much lumped in with that same thing. Publishers expect to have audio rights. Now, does, do, the, do your royalties for audiobooks count against the advance, or is that a separate thing? Any money that, from rights that the publisher has bought is going to can, that comes in is going to count uh, to earning out your advance. Okay, so once the advance is earned out and you sell an audiobook for, let's make it simple, $20. What do you get? I'm not as familiar with audiobook royalties, but I think it might possibly be 25%. Okay. I think I'm not sure because like it's also changed too. Now the now audio like when I first started, audio was produced on CD and made available digitally. Well, now they don't even bother producing CDs anymore except for the libraries. Mhm. Mm it's all digital. So I, because I don't sell a huge amount of audio in relation to ebooks and paper, I haven't really gone over and, and combed through those details as much. But I also want to say that when we're talking about royalty rates for ebooks and, and print and so forth, we're speaking of books that are sold to, to the general public or to a, one of the mass... Well, they got, they're they're rebookers. They like they buy a lot of them and then they turn around and sell them to uh, to libraries and so on. forth. We're, we're not we're talking about those, but the royalty rates and the prices that are charged for library versions or large print versions or foreign edition versions in English. There there's a royalty. It's just it's crazy how many different royalty rate structures and pricings there are, and it's all going to be in the contract. How many pages is your royalty statement when you get it? Um, I think they average anywhere from like, if there's not a lot of movement and the book hasn't been out for very long, maybe about six pages. And for the ones that have been out for a long time, maybe like 12. 
Okay, so it's not it's not like uh, you just sit down and you look at the bottom line and you say, eh, and uh, throw it in the file. You, you need to really comb through it to understand what has happened over the course of the last six months. If you're business-minded, you will. Uh, I, I imagine a lot of authors just look at the bottom line. I, I, go, I comb through my royalty statements. Um, I can tell, I, I run the numbers on every single foreign right sale that's ca accounted for. I can figure out how much subcontract no sub agents in the in the foreign offices were getting and I actually had I'd go to my my agent often and say why why is so much money taken out of this this doesn't make sense this is way more than 15% and then they'll talk to the person who manages it and they'll say oh well that's a particular country that has a 10% foreign tax blah 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 okay fine but I want to know I want to know why the money's not there and it's not even like you know damn it where's my money it's because I I have to look out for me like I know that my agency is really good about staying on top of these things, but ultimately nobody's going to be looking out for my interests to the same level that I'm going to look out for my interests. And so I like to understand. And so I will go through, and there will be like 20 different uh, ebook versions on listed, each one for different price, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll sit there and I'll comb through it. And okay, so this must have been when they put that book on sale. These are those sales. This must have been when this happened, and, and I'll just try and figure it out and piece it all together. But it takes work, and it takes the ability to sit down and, and bean count, which, again, if you're creative, it's probably not the easiest thing to do, but I am not really a creative, so. So says the best-selling author that uh, is cranking out uh, a book a year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you, well, I have one more question about rights. Okay. And um, and then then we'll 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 move on. Um, movie rights. Yes. Uh, have you ever sold or optioned movie rights to the Informationist or any of your other books? Yes. Okay. Uh, tell me how that works because I know for a fact that if you if you option your book, then you're fabulously wealthy, right? Because Not. that's the way it works. <laughs> that's what you said about books too, right? <laughs> well, but I know I'm wrong about that now. Right. So, well, first of all, just like with traditional publishing, if you want to go traditional movie, whatever, you need to have a film agent. In, in publishing, people, I mean, you hear, you read stuff on blogs and you just kind of roll your eyes. You know, people are so scared. Oh, they're going to steal my manuscript. I need to copyright it yeah. and so on and yeah. so forth. Well, it's not going to, there's, there's no reason for them to do that in publishing. In the film industry, Guard that thing, put under locking key, don't let anybody see it, because ideas are not copyrightable. The execution of the idea is protected, but not the idea itself. And that's what, you know, when you write a book, it takes a long time to write that book, and nobody's going to execute the same idea. The, no two people are going to execute the same idea the same way, and it's the execution of the idea that gives it value. But when you're talking about film, Ideas are flying around everywhere, and somebody can take an idea and then make their own execution of it quite easily. So film is completely separate. So when you, when you have a, a manuscript, you don't just want to go hand it out willy-nilly and say, hey, you know, you want somebody representing it because they're going to look out for that thing as it's, that's there. If somebody tries to steal it, they're stealing money from that person. So this is a completely separate person representing you. It's not your yes. agent in the literary world. This is a, an agent for the film world. Correct. And it's been my experience, at least with my agency. They're pretty well connected. They they because they've been in business for so long. They've they've it's not their first rodeo. 
And they have people that they've worked with in the past that they have good experiences with and people they've had bad experiences with. So when they're ready to bring a book to the film market, they know who to go to and say, and your, my agent was like, look, this is a person I've worked with before. I've had really good experiences with him. I'd like to submit your your book for consideration. I'm like, okay, great, go for it. So you end up with a film agent and a book agent working together. The film agent is representing your film rights. Your book agent is representing your book rights. And if they're doing things the way that that should be done, everybody should be talking to everybody so that your book agent always knows what's going on with the film agent because your book agent is looking out for your career long term. And she doesn't want any surprises coming from anywhere. And she'll be the one keeping your film agent apprised of, okay, there's a new book coming out. Here it is. And so on and so forth. So with, with a book agent, if, you know, okay, all agents don't get paid. If they're reputable, they don't get paid unless they sell your work. That's, they earn the commissions off of the, the work that they did in selling your work. I've, I've heard and seen a lot of people say agents are unnecessary and all they do is take money that you could get yourself if you just had a good uh, intellectual rights lawyer look over your contracts and so on and so forth. This could very well be true. But in my experience, my agent, both of them, have earned every single dollar I've paid them. Because agents have their ear to the ground. Publishing and filmmaking are some of the few industries left where it's not what you know, but who you know. It's very much an old school, hey, let's go out to lunch. What are you looking for? What have you done lately? What are you excited about? And so on and so forth. So agents, when they reject a manuscript, it's not necessarily that the manuscript is bad. They might love it, but they might have no idea who in their network of friends and connections and, and inside knowledge would be the one to publish it. And as the law of agencies goes, they would be in violation of the position that they carry if they were to accept a manuscript that they did not reasonably believe that they could sell. Because their job as an agent is to represent you, to look out for your best interest. So in the case of of movie rights, if you're with a reputable agent, they're going to know a reputable film agent, and they're then going to pass that on to the film agent. And at that point, the responsibility for trying to represent the book for film now is in the hands of your film agent. When did you acquire your film agent? I believe it was right after the editorial process was complete. Okay, so it was pretty early on. It was before the book got published. So then the agent goes out and finds someone who takes an option on the material. Well, the agent, the film agent is going to work a lot like a book agent would in that they're, they know, they have their ears to the ground on who does what. They're, they're going to read the book. They're going to figure out who they think would be a really good fit for it. They start shopping it around. Now, with books, if your agent can't sell that book within about a year's time, if they're ethical, they're probably going to give it back to you and say, look, I tried, but this is just not selling. Please, you know, you're welcome to find another agent that maybe has different connections than I do. So if you haven't sold it in a year, you pretty much know that something needs to be either rewritten or whatever. With film, it could be 20 years before that book sells for film. There's no expiration date on it because film is a completely different world. So your book becomes part of, I guess you say, your film agent's stable of 
horses that he's putting into the race hmm. and always keeping, you know, based on what he thinks is going to sell the highest and what has the most potential, he's going to put more effort into putting that into hand, into people's hands. So if he finds someone who likes it, they don't just buy it, do they? Or, or do generally, they? I mean, it can happen. It, it can happen. But generally what happens is the purchaser will option the book. And option money is you can't get it back. So it's considered part of the overall purchase price, depending on how the contract is worded. So depending on the book, generally speaking, most, from what my film agent tells me, most options have more than one option period. So the option gets renewed. It, contractually, it's built into the contract that the option can be renewed a certain number of times before the buyer has to either say, yes, I want it and pay up or just not just let it go and not and not pay up. So basically what the what the buyer is doing or the potential buyer is doing is saying, I will give you X for the right to buy your book for Y. And then they go out and try and sell it for a lot more than Y, obviously. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think when somebody options a book, the, the first part of your sentence, the, your, your equation was right. I give you X to be able to purchase your book for Y by such and such date. But they're not doing that to turn around and sell it to someone else. Usually what they're doing is holding on to it to try and, and build a, um, a production team and okay, to, right. to get a, a studio to back it. Okay. And that's, um, yeah, that's a completely different thing than someone buying it. it it's, it's basically getting a studio to commit to making the movies and start paying salaries for people to do Yeah, that. so they, they, in the meantime, whoever optioned the book uh, and has the film rights to it for that set period of time now knows that nobody else is going to buy it. It's theirs. They have the right to do, to do it, so they know that they can buy it if they want it. And so they're going to start looking for directors, trying to pull directors on board and try and find a studio to back it. And they, they, they put together a proposal because a studio is not going to just say, yeah, we'll back this film if the film doesn't have a good writer and a good director and uh, some, maybe a few key star players who are already signed on to it. So during that option period, that's what the person who owns that option is trying to do is pull it together and uh, to get it made. And um, I think it's pretty fair to say that most books that are optioned don't get made into movies. What percentage would you say do get made into movies? Um, you know, I'm not real versed in that world, but just from the conversations that I've had bouncing around when the rights to when the film rights, the information were optioned, I think somebody said like you've got like a one in a hundred chance of having it made if you're just going with the average studio or average production company that's optioning a book. Not very good odds. No, not really. But it's exciting though, isn't it? When you get when it's when it's optioned. Because people talk about it, like um, it, it, it's almost they talk about it at the same level they do when they sold their first book. Yeah, and I mean, in my particular case, I, I'm not, I'm a real, people say that I'm a glass half full pot person, but I don't see it that way. I see myself as being incredibly pragmatic, and I don't really believe in counting chickens before they hatch. I'm like, okay, there's chickens, it's awesome. It would be so awesome if they all hatched, but we're not going to count them <laughs> unless they do, you know. So in my, in my particular case, because the film rights were optioned by James Cameron, who doesn't just go around willy-nilly optioning, optioning books, and um, who four months prior to 
doing this option had said to the New York Times that he was never going to produce another non-Avatar movie again ever, that he was out of the movie-making business except for Avatar. For him to come now and option this book, I, I think there's a little bit higher chance that it will be made into a movie than the one in a hundred, but he's optioned other books that he has not turned into movies yet. So there's no guarantee that it's going to happen. It would be amazing if it happened. But what what it did was it gave sort of a cachet. Is that how you say that word? Yes. Um, to, to me as an author, it was like a validation thing of, you know, sure, you've never heard of her, <laughs> but James Cameron has. <laughs> Sure, you didn't see her interviewed in all these magazines, and you didn't see her on TV, and you didn't see her books in the bestseller racks. But, but you know, that was a that was a one and done thing. You know, that happened with the first book, and then now I'm like every other author who's just trying to, you know, make people remember that hey, I'm still out here. Don't don't forget me. Yeah. You know, so you know, it all helps. It all it all helps, and and that that gets a little frustrating for me when um, people think, oh, well, all these awesome things happened to her and her books, which they did. I'm not negating that. Now she doesn't, she's good. She doesn't need any help. Not true. Not true. This series will only be able to continue if it continues to have reader support. And if readers are like, oh, okay, well, I've read that one and now I'm going to go read something else. Well, series dies. So um, not to guilt anyone into anything. Yes, I am trying to guilt them into it. Uh, but it, it's just because someone had a big book doesn't mean that they're set. Now that's that's a great segue into uh, the last session of or section of what I wanted to talk about today. Um, in your emails, uh, part of them are about the industry, part of them are about just sort of like what's going on with the books. A certain percentage of them are inspirational. Um, I get a sense that you work really hard to stay up, to stay focused, to stay positive, to stay on task, and you help share some of those thoughts in the emails that you send out. Is that just something that you need to do because writing is a solitary business, or is this just the way you've always been? Um, well, let's break that down into a few different, uh, few different parts. As far as me getting down and fighting to stay up, this is very, very true. I, I am learning to just accept the good and not freak out about, yeah, but there's this other thing coming and maybe it's not going to work out and stuff. I, I live with, uh, because of having come from such a broken background and not having what I need and not having a fallback career and not really knowing what else to do with my life except this, there's always this sense of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, if this doesn't do so good. And my, my sense, my, I, I've recently discovered that uh, I, I have this need to, to prove my value to the world in order to be okay about me as a person. Uh, because, you know, we, we all have value. And if, if I'm constantly having this need to prove, 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 prove my worth, then I'm never going to feel like I'm worth anything. So this is, this is what I struggle with, especially since I'm not a big fan of my own writing. I, I, I'm in awe that people are like, oh my God, this is so awesome. I'm like, yeah, well, they didn't think so. Because I just, I just can't, I can't accept it for what it is. It's, it's a struggle for me. And so that part, a lot of my, I'm like, I'm, I, I can see how being like that is preventing me from just living in the moment and enjoying the good and, 
and saying, wow, all these awesome things happened to me. Isn't this so fantastic? And stopping right there and not, yeah, but. So that, that's part of it. It's, 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 I'm, on a, I'm, I'm trying to just improve my own state of happiness, I guess you could say, of contentment. And yes, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. So when I, when I share these things with other people, it's not because I have this need to share. It's because I realize that if, if me, who's, who's had all these amazing things happen to me, I'm still bel- just, just plagued with doubt and self-belittlement, how much more so people who haven't had all kinds of awesome things happen to them? So, you know, as humans, we, we just, we want to be loved and accepted and to be able to get through the day without feeling like we're judged every single minute. And, and, and yet we live in a world that's exactly the opposite of that. And so I feel like, well, if, if I can make somebody's day a little bit brighter, why withhold that? The quotes that you put on the bottom of your email messages, where do they come from? From me. That's what I thought, because they, they weren't assigned to anyone. Well, at, at the very beginning, the second email you would have gotten, haha, I see I know this because it's on a clock. Um, it, it explains it. It explains where, you know, the background and what they, like, I'm, they're very personal, and I hesitate to include them because they're so personal, but maybe they'll help somebody. And so I put the first one in that email, and then ever since then, most emails have them. I'm running out of them. <laughs> I've only got so many. <laughs> well, Taylor, you have been incredibly generous with your time today and your knowledge. It's, it's always a treat for me to talk to you. It's, always a, it's really a treat for me to, to get your new books. Uh, the Catch is coming out on July 15th. The Vessel is available now. Your other books, The Informationist, The Innocent, and The Doll are all available um, the Vessel is 99 cents, and it is a fabulous read. Uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? If you go to my website, which is taylorstevensbooks.com, you have to put the books on there, or you'll get the porn star, not the author. taylorstevensbooks.com, there is a connect with me button, and that will allow anyone who wants to, to get on my mailing list. I read every email that is sent to me. I don't always have an opportunity to respond to everyone, but I do read them all. I don't have an assistant doing this. It doesn't go to some big, massive mail collection thing. There's a real person on the other end of the line who reads and enjoys and is boosted by the emails that come in from her readers. That would be me. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Taylor. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, including past episodes, you can visit the website at www.theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions for the show, you can leave them at the site or you can ping me on Twitter. I'm at Steve Campbell FL. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.